And Father, that's what we ask, is that your grace would enable us and empower us, that we may stand against the devil's schemes, that we can stand against the onslaught that the world throws at us to undermine what we believe, to challenge us in the various ways. God, that we may stand strong in you. For there is no greater power than you. There is no greater force of confidence and source of boldness than the contemplation, the fact that Jesus got into a grave and crawled back out. The tomb is empty. The power of God has been demonstrated. Jesus has risen from the dead. And because of that reality, Lord, we have no reason to fear death anymore. As Jesus said, though we die, yet we shall live. That the worst thing that this world can do to our bodies is kill it, and therefore we ought not to fear what this world can do because, God, you are the one, the only one, who can kill both body and soul in hell. And so we rightly fear you, not merely because you are powerful and majestic and holy, but we fear you because you are also our redeemer the one who in majesty comes to rescue us. You are the one who in holiness has granted to us righteousness by faith. You are the one who sought us and came to die for us. And so, Lord, it is right and good for us as a church to beg of you to grant to us such boldness and such courage that we can face whatever it is in this world with confidence that you are for us and not against us. And so, Father, would you embolden your church? God, would you empower us to be men and women who with confidence can have Jesus on our lips and hope in our hearts that all that we say and do would be saturated by grace? And as we come to your word now, Lord, we seek to know you better than we do when we first arrived. And should you be pleased to answer our prayers and revealing yourself to us, we will give you thanks and praise. But we have come to this place to know you. We've come to this place to hear a word from you. We've come to hear of your love. We've heard, and now we want to experience for ourselves the riches of your grace. So God, by the Holy Spirit, would you do it in our hearts? Do it for us, Lord. Help us to have a felt sense of forgiveness in this place. And Lord, we'll give you thanks for all that you do. We pray through Jesus for his glory and for our joy. Amen. Amen. Ah, good morning, church. Uh, You could probably tell our choir is a little bit uh, less people than usual because a lot of people are sick. And uh, I want you to be mindful in the coming weeks that we need to continue to pray for people who are sick. Uh, We have tons and tons of people. We're hearing it time and time again of this family, that family, kids, grandparents, everyone's just sick or recovering and all that kind of stuff. So uh, let's not be off duty uh, to the the glorious um, responsibility of praying for one another's welfare, all right? Uh, Just want to let you know about just uh, a couple quick things before we jump in to the book of Hosea is number one, um, ladies in the church, want to make sure that you're aware of this, that we are starting uh, our spring Bible study for women through the book of Luke. It's starting on Tuesday, February 22nd, so the day is coming uh, quickly, and uh, we, both, we have morning and evening Bible studies through the book of Luke, so I want to encourage you to avail yourself to that. You can go to our website, you can see how to sign up, and all that good stuff is there. I'm going to let you know, too, um, that we, 
you, you probably heard about this um, in the news and all that kind of stuff. Maybe you're living under a rock and you didn't. But anyways, uh, uh, several months ago, you know that the United States government provided uh, an opportunity to evacuate many people from Afghanistan, huge numbers. And one of the things that they were doing was um, providing refugees with an opportunity to be settled or resettled in the United States. Once we heard about that, we as a church, elders, pastors, and stuff started praying about how God might use our church in that endeavor. And so um, you probably heard of Samaritan's Purse. Have you heard of that ministry? So Samaritan's Purse, uh, we were, got in contact with them, and they are currently um, ministering to refugee families from Afghanistan and helping them to get settled and resettled uh, in the United States, providing all kinds of support and help. And when they contacted us, Pastor Bo and myself, we were praying and thinking about this, and we said, you know what, this would be a fantastic opportunity for us as a church to walk alongside of in partnership with Samaritan's Purse um, to help minister to these families. And so we are in need of some volunteers who would be willing to come alongside two particular families for a few months in order to get them settled, uh, to welcome them and get them established uh, in our community. We're going to have a quick, short info session that Pastor Bo is going to lead in room 148, which is down the hallway at the end of the hallway. And uh, if you want to learn more about what that would entail and what that means, um, we have a little Q&A and a little uh, frequently asked question uh, kind of time there. But this is how, you know, Matthew 23 talks about uh, Jesus says, you did not welcome the stranger. And that was one of the reasons why they did not know Jesus. And so this is for us as a church, how we can welcome the stranger in Christ's name. And so um, if you're interested in that, we have uh, opportunity there. And we're praying that the Lord, perhaps, uh, if he's pleased to do so, uh, would use our church to impact people uh, for his glory through that. So I want to let you know about that. If you have your Bible, and I trust that you do, let's open it up to Hosea chapter 2. Uh, today's text is pretty long. Uh, we're going to start in verse 14. We're going to work our way to the end of the chapter, and then we're going to jump into a very short chapter, which is chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. I'm going to read um, each section as we go. Uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing at first because I'm, <laughs> I'm just trying to stay within some semblance of our time restrictions. Um, we have never published an end time to our services. Just so everyone knows, ever, uh, it is ambiguous and open. So, anywho, um, so we're going to go uh, through this section, but I want to help us by remembering a bit about uh, what we talked about last week, and I understand not everyone goes to church every week. Uh, it is ideal that you do. It is most beneficial that you do, but we understand that not everyone does, so let me uh, walk a little bit from last week. Today, we're going to see how God pursues his people to redeem them and restore them, even though it's so obvious that the people that he seeks to redeem and restore don't deserve it. They deserve judgment, but God is going to prove himself to be merciful, gracious, and abounding in steadfast love. So if you remember last week, we talked about how God disciplines his children, how he is like a father that loves us to the point that he sees our need and understands that we need some help. For oftentimes, we put before God things which have no business being before God. They are lesser loves. They are lesser good things. So God disciplines us. And how he disciplines us, he can take it from us, saying you can't have this anymore because you don't know how to handle it. 
Or sometimes what God does is enable or allows us to pursue these things, but in our pursuit of them, we never quite get them. Or if we do get them, we're not satisfied by them. And I've known young adults who have been praying and praying and praying, God, give me a wife, give me a husband, whatever. I just want to be married. I just want to be married. All I want is to be married. And so eventually they get married and they wake up and they realize I just married a stranger and he's in my bed every morning. And it's just like, oh, no. Sometimes people pray and pray and pray for promotions or new cars and new clothes, new all kinds of stuff. And then when you get them, you realize, man, this isn't as good as I thought it was going to be. And so the dissatisfying experience is part of God's discipline. He wants to awaken us to the realities that God has never designed us to be fully and ultimately satisfied by anything in this world because he has made you for another world. He has made you for himself. And until we find our rest in him and until we find our true satisfaction in him, we will always be restless and dissatisfied and you'll wake up every morning wondering what can I do today to feel like life is worth living and that I'm arrived. And every day we wake up having the reality that yesterday didn't work. What can I do now? But he who finds the Lord will never be put to shame. God will satisfy you. And so the essence we learned last week, the essence of this kind of rebellion and dissatisfaction is idolatry. Idolatry is when you look to things or people to try to receive from them what only God can give you. All of us seek to be approved. All of us seek to be welcomed and accepted, to be loved for who we are. All of us want value and to have a sense of self-worth. All of us want to know that our lives matter. All of us want to make a difference in the world in some way, shape, or form. And so we're told by advertisers and everyone else that if you buy their product and do their thing and sign up for this and wear this and look this way, you'll get it. The approval, the satisfaction, the welcome, the value. And we buy the products and we buy the products and they come out with the new stuff because they know their stuff doesn't satisfy. And we keep thinking, well, the next one will. The next iPhone will for sure satisfy me. No, it won't. The essence of idolatry is self-love. And your selfishness will grow in proportion to your ignoring or forgetting God. The more you ignore or forget your maker, and the more you think that what matters in life is yourself being satisfied by your desires, the more you will see life and experience life in a dissatisfying way. And so God in his infinite grace and abounding love will say to us, I have something better. I have real abiding life for you. I will accept you. I will welcome you. You can be mine. You are valuable. You are loved. Incomprehensibly so. And God demonstrates it in how he sent Jesus Christ to save us. And yet these people, Israel in the Old Testament in our time in the book of Hosea, if you look at verse 13, they were continuing to live in idolatry. And God says, I'm going to punish you because of your worship of idols. 
I am done with you chasing your idols. It says Israel has gone after her lovers. You have loved your clothing, your fashion, your money, your possessions, your house, your kids, your career. You have loved them too much. And the way C.S. Lewis describes it is this. It's not that God finds our desires too much, but they find, God finds our desires too little. We're fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when God has offered you infinite joy in him. Your desires are too small. God wants you to have bigger desires than mere fashion. And yet these people, Israel, they went after their lovers, their idols, and they're like, no, 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 this will satisfy. And the essence of their idolatry, it says at the end of verse 13, is they have forgotten the Lord. They've abandoned him, ignored him, disobeyed him. They want nothing to do with him. And so the first word we see is this, therefore. Oh, and you know what's coming. God's bringing the hammer. You forgot me? You don't want me? Oh, man, therefore. Here's what's going down. But here's what I want you to do. Listen with me while I read verses 14 to 23. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you shall call me my husband and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on the day with the beasts of the field the birds of the heavens, the creeping things of the ground, and I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to myself. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to to me in faithfulness. You shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine and the oil and they shall answer Jezreel. I will sow her for myself in the land and I will have mercy on no mercy and I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. That's not what we would expect. After they have mistreated and abandoned God and done unspeakable horrors that I don't have enough time to explain because um, they're not suitable for all audiences. And uh, I'm not trying to be funny. I'm just saying if, if you were to read what the worship of Baal entailed, it would require us to ask our children to leave the room. And yet these people were committing these acts in God's name unspeakable horrors. And so when you get to verse 14, you're thinking, okay, therefore, oh yeah. And you and I are knowing this about the Israelite people, knowing how bad they were, how horribly immoral they were, we're thinking to ourselves, yeah, God's gonna get them. <laughs> they're, they're, he's gonna put an end to all this nonsense. And so when he says, therefore, the justice side of us is like, yeah, that's right, you get them. They're messed up. And you and I know what that's like because I, I don't know about you, but I think it's just me. I'm getting to be older, and so I think I'm becoming one of those like angry old men 
But as I, as I drive, the wife just like, <laughs> as I drive on the freeway and stuff, I, I'm driving and I'm driving the speed limit-ish and I'm going and uh, I'm, I'm looking because cars are passing me and they're just going so fast and I look down, I'm like, I'm going 70 and people and I was like, whoa, did like an IndyCar race break out and nobody told me what's going on? And so I'm, I'm thinking to myself, of all the times to have a highway patrol, uh, like there now would be the time. And, and you don't see them and you're just like, man, these guys are driving dangerous. And you keep driving, you turn around and, go, and next thing you know, you see it. The lights are going, the police officer is in the passenger window and it's the car that passed you at 95 and you just drive by like, that's what you get, fool. And you, <laughs> and you love it. You absolutely love it. You're like, yes, you got it. You and I know what justice is like, but if you reverse that and you're like late to something, you're like, ooh, looking around, making sure no one sees me, and then you see the light, you're like, oh, I want mercy, please. <laughs> you know exactly what it's like. So, so we, our justice side of us will be like, these people deserve to get the hammer. God better bring it. And then you read, therefore, behold, I will allure her. Jump down to the, to the third line and speak tenderly to her. You gonna do what? Can you imagine a police officer? I'm gonna pull you over and I'm gonna lean into your car. How you doing today? <laughs> Everything going well? How's the family? You mind if I get in, man? Let's, let's talk. Let's hang out. <laughs> you, just, you drive by and you're like, that's a bad police officer. <laughs> it's disgraceful we would say to ourselves for the police officer to let this person go. And yet what we see in verse 14 is a God who knows all of their sin and the ways in which they've rejected him and hated him. And God is saying, I'm going to woo her to myself and speak to her heart with tenderness. What? That is so illogical. It doesn't even make sense. Why would God do that? I love this word allure. It means to woo or to charm. And I'm going to tell you a little story. Uh, when I was in college in the early 2000s, it was Biola University, there was a coffee shop called Common Grounds. And uh, at night, there was always, you know, it was, it was dimly lit. It was beautiful. There's palm trees and uplighting. And there's lots of tables and chairs out. And there would be people studying in the dark, <laughs> but these study partners always were a guy and a girl. And as we would watch this, I, I, I would just love this, and I'm just wondering, like, I wonder what they're doing. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure they're studying their Bibles together and stuff. And uh, what you noticed is all the guys who were sitting at these tables were wearing leather jackets. And I thought that so peculiar, like, there's like four tables with a guy and a girl sitting opposite each other, talking intimately with each other and giggling. And all the guys are wearing leather jackets. And so I came back to my roommates. I was like, hey, man, what's up with Southern California, dude? These dudes are wearing leather jackets all the time. He's like, oh, man, that, that's kind of what you wear when, you, when you're going to, you know, when you're going to talk to a lady. I'm like, oh. So sometimes I'll be walking back to my dorm and I would see a guy walking by himself with his leather jacket on. And I would be like, what's her name? <laughs> I know what you're going to do. 
And there they would go, and, and these guys with their leather jackets would be sitting there with these girls and just charming them and, you know, just telling them everything that these girls want to hear. And the girls are just giggling and flirting, and the guys are doing the thing. And I'm watching this like, this is ridiculous. And so sometimes I would sit at a table next to them just to hear, what's going on? And I would sit down, and I, you know, just ear hustle to the side, just like... And I would listen to what these dudes are saying. I'm like, he ain't going to get the girl. He don't have what it takes. There's no way, leather jacket or not. But here is God, and, and you can imagine this. What he's doing is alluring his sinful people. Like God is just putting on the leather jacket, putting on the axe body spray. He's coming to get the girl. He's going to allure her. He's going to speak tenderly to her. And the word speak tenderly means, means uh, to, to affect the heart. So here is God. This is intention, his intention. I'm going to speak to her. I'm going to allure her. I'm going to woo her back to myself. So the first line, God's going to woo her. Third line, God's going to speak tenderly to her heart. And then right in the middle, you have how he's going to do it. I'm going to bring her into the wilderness. What? Think back to your leather jacket moment. And this dude is like, hey, I'm going to take you out to a nice little restaurant. And the girl says, oh, okay. And in Southern California, every restaurant has a rating, A, B, C, and you better close this, this down. And so when you go to the restaurant, you'll see, have you, anyone lived in Southern California? You know what I'm talking about? And, and there'll be an A rating and a C rating and stuff. You don't want to go to the C rating. That means some, some, some shady stuff is going on in that kitchen. There's rat turds. And it's just bad. And you imagine leather jacket man comes in with his girl arm in arm and they go to the restaurant and right in the window, C rating. Man, that's the best you can do? C rating? A rating maybe. Like, go to a place with tablecloths. Like, come on, step your game up. But this is what God is doing. God is coming to woo Israel, but he's gonna take her into a place you would not expect. He's not going to woo her with riches. He's not going to woo her with fine adornments and clothing and precious pearls and all this kind of stuff. He's going to take her out to the wilderness. Now, what's the wilderness about? It's a place of testing. It's a place where God trains his people. It's a place where God strips you of all of your dependencies and makes you rely on him. He makes you thirsty. He makes you hungry. He makes you where you don't have permanent housing. He makes it where it's hot. He makes it where it's miserable. And God says, I'm taking you to the place where you're going to feel most uncomfortable because it's in that discomfort. I'm going to speak words of tenderness to you. I'm going to win you back. Because right now, Israel, his bride, has been faithless. And God is saying, as your husband, I'm about to win you back. <laughs> And what's amazing is you're thinking, man, Lord, um, he's been so patient with these people. He's been way more patient than I could ever be. And yet that's the very heart of God. It's his patience. It's his kindness towards us is how God wins us to himself. So that's exactly what we see, for instance, in Romans 2 where the Apostle Paul says this, do you presume? Are you being presumptuous? on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience? In other words, are you 
mistaking God's kindness towards you and his patience towards you as a subtle affirmation that he's okay with what you're doing. I've heard this before. Maybe you've said it. I know I have. When you're engaged in something which is not good and godly, you begin to rationalize with yourself and tell yourself, you know what, if this was so bad, then God would stop it. But since he hasn't immediately stopped it, he must be okay with it. That's terrible rationalization. But that's what the people are doing is presuming on God's patience and kindness. But do you not know that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Don't you realize that the reason why God is being patient with you and kind towards you and giving you space in your life and not immediately, immediately taking you out when you're in the midst of sin is because he's waiting for you to repent. He wants you to come to the realization, this is not good. God is better. And he wants you to turn and come to him. Now, the climax of God's goodness and patience and kindness towards sinners is not when God takes Israel into the wilderness The climax of God's goodness, patience, is when he sent Jesus to us. I want you to see this. Remind them, he's been in the church. Remind the church to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy towards all people, because we ourselves were once foolish disobedient, led astray, and slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. So there's positive commands and negative commands. And why God gives this comes to uh, the forefront in the next verses. But in contrast to all that nastiness, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. And what is that in reference to? We're in church, so you got, I mean, Jesus is the answer. (laughs) Jesus is the appearing of God's goodness. Jesus is the appearing of loving kindness. I'm not talking about Jesus showing up and saying things. I'm talking about Jesus himself. He himself is God's goodness and is God's loving kindness. And when Jesus came, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but he saved us according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. In other words, God has been so patient with us. He has been so good to us. And the evidence of his goodness, patience, and kindness towards us is the fact that he sent Jesus to rescue us from our sins. And he didn't come to rescue people who make themselves worthy of being rescued by their good works. He comes to rescue disgusting, sinful, disobedient people, to clean them off, to make them new again. That is the goodness of God. 
That is the patience of God. That is the kindness of God. And if you notice in this text, we should do good works. We should be gentle. We should show courtesy towards all people. We should not speak evil against others. We shouldn't be malicious and envious and all that kind of stuff. Now, why shouldn't we? It's because we who believe in Jesus Christ are no longer enslaved to sin. That's what verses four through seven mean. We've been, as I preached last week, redeemed, and now we're given a new identity, and we need to live in light of that identity. And so, when we look in verse 15, going back to Hosea 2, we see how God disciplines or how God is going to train his people in the wilderness as he speaks tenderly to them because of his patience and forbearance and his kindness and goodness, which is epitomized in Jesus Christ. And then he says this, verse 15, and there in the wilderness, I will give her her vineyards. Whoa. In the middle of nothingness, where everything has been stripped I'm gonna make sure that she's a lush garden. And kind of the image behind me is, is, is on purpose. We're at the base of this cross, you see this dry, cracked land where, where you know no vegetation's growing in there. There's no water source there. There's no sustainable life there. But springing up from the cross, what do you see? Vineyards, lush gardens. Because God intends through his son Jesus Christ to take a people who are lifeless and disobedient, who have been stripped of all of their false gods, he's going to take them and bring them into a place where they can know him. And he's going to speak tenderly to their hearts. And he's going to awaken them to himself. And he's going to grace them with life. (laughs) Yeah, that's so good. And he says, I'm going to make the valley of Achor a door of hope. Now, you don't understand more than likely what the Valley of Achor is. If you look in the bottom of your footnotes in your Bible, you'll probably see Achor means trouble. So God's going to take this valley of trouble, and he's going to turn it into a door of hope. Now, we need to know what in the world is the Valley of Achor. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Joshua chapter 7, and what you're going to find in Joshua chapter 7 is an explanation of the Valley of Achor. But before you get to Joshua 7, you have to read Joshua 6, and it's very famous because it's a VeggieTales movie. Um, It's about the fall of Jericho, and you know uh, the cucumbers and tomatoes walked around. Just kidding. Uh, So they walked around the city of Jericho, blew the trumpet, walls come tumbling down, and the people conquered uh, the people who lived in Jericho. And what God told the people was, when you defeat Jericho, you cannot take any of the spoils of war. You're not taking any of their goods or anything like that. Everything is left for destruction. God's like, I don't want you to associate with these things. They're idolatrous and pagan and all that kind of stuff. Get rid of it all. And so they conquer Jericho, great victory. Everyone's excited. And then uh, the next town they come to where they have to wage wars against a town called Ai, Ai. And uh, it's a very powerless little village 
the people of Israel should easily rout the people of Ai. And so Joshua, being the commander, sent out two spies and says, what do you think, uh, what's going to be needed for this military victory? They come back and say, not much. We can easily beat them. Okay. So he sends a small army in and they get routed. And the people come back and they go, what happened? I thought God was on our side. And so Joshua lays prostrate on the ground, face down, and says, God, what in the world has happened? Why have you allowed us to not be victorious? And so we'll pick it up. The people of Israel, they had broken faith in regard to the devoted things. That is the things that were left over after military victory in Jericho. They were supposed to destroy them, but they didn't. Because Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. And so Joshua falls on his face and begins to pray and God says to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. Do you see what happens? These things are devoted for destruction and now they themselves become devoted for destruction. Why is that? Because you will become whatever you worship. And that means, brothers and sisters, if you worship lifeless things which do not extend into eternity, that cannot give you everlasting life, you cannot be expected to actually have everlasting life. You will get from God whatever that God is. If it's a lifeless idol, like job promotion or money or jet skis, that's all you get. But if your worship is of the true God who is life himself, then you get life. And so, since you want things which are going to be destroyed, then you will become a thing that will be destroyed. And God says, I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. And so, you probably know this story, one by one, uh, families and tribes and clans come forward until finally Achan is identified. And Joshua says, Achan, you better tell your side of the story. What happened? Give glory to God and you better be honest. And so Achan says to Joshua, I sinned against the Lord. Uh, I saw a beautiful cloak and I took it. I I saw 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels and I coveted them and I took them. And they're hidden, buried underneath my tent so no one could see it. You see, we think we can get away with stuff, but God sees it all. And so, after confessing it, the people then do as God instructed, because this man is a transgressor against the law, he must be put to death. And so they kill him. And then they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. It's a day of trouble. It's the day in which the people of Israel broke the Ten Commandments. They broke the covenant of God. How? They broke the Tenth Commandment, and they decided to covet. Not only did they covet, that is, to want stuff that isn't yours, but they lied about it. They stole stuff. And so, because of that, they incurred the wrath of God, the judgment of God. 
But what's amazing about this place is not only is it a place of great sin and great judgment and great wrath, but as we saw in this, God turns from his burning anger. It's also a great place of justification. It's the place where God's wrath comes but is also satisfied. And what that means for us is this, we have to scour our our Bibles and we ask ourselves the question, is there anything in the Bible that could be described as a place in which the fullness of God's wrath comes but is simultaneously satisfied? And the answer is yes. You see, Jesus Christ is the true and better valley of Achor. Jesus Christ, crucified on a cross, naked and bleeding, had that experience because it was God who was pouring out his wrath in fullness. And Jesus had that experience on that day as he hung bloody and naked on the cross because he was going to satisfy completely and fully the wrath of God for all who believe. He is the true and better valley of Achor, the place in which the judgment and wrath of God meet God's satisfaction of his wrath and judgment. And what is the result? Let's go back to verse 15. God will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. It is through the cross, but not merely the cross. It's through the cross and the resurrection that you and I have hope. You see, for our sake, As we read in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, Jesus became sin even though he didn't know sin. He did that for us, living for us, dying for us, so that we can be given the righteousness which is his. And so Jesus steps into our mess and experiences for himself the judgment of God That is, the full wrath of God was poured out on him, even though he didn't deserve it. But he steps in as our substitute, where we don't have to pay for our own sin and experience the wrath of God. He does it for us. And having shed his blood on the cross, he satisfies God's wrath completely. And in being defeated and put to death, Jesus is crushed under the weight of the wrath of God, which is poured out on him. And indeed, that place where Jesus died could be called the valley of trouble. And yet we know, brothers and sisters, he was taken from the cross, wrapped in linens, put into a cave, and three days later, he got back out. And when he got back out, what he did is verify and validate that death no longer has the ultimate stranglehold on humanity. He has conquered death itself. What hangs over all of us because of our sin is the wrath of God and God's judgment. And yet Jesus, in satisfying the wrath of God on the cross and rising from the dead on the third day, he's now offering life to all who will receive it. That the valley of trouble has become a door to hope. And what is the hope that we experience? It's that Satan, although he thought the crucifixion of Jesus was his ultimate victory, God makes the cross the doorway to hope. Through death, death will be no more. And God will grant to us the grace of fruitfulness. 
God will grace us with his forgiveness. God will grace us with relationship. God will bring us into intimacy with himself. Having once been his enemy, now God pulls us in to be his people. And so that valley of Achor, that place of trouble, is going to turn into a place of hope. And there in this place of hope, she, being the people of God, shall answer as in the days of her youth. That word answer there is in reference to like a proposal. The days of her youth. Let me show you this in Jeremiah 2. This is a description of Israel and God when Israel first came out of Egypt. God says, I remember your Uh, Remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride. When you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown, Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. So the way God describes Israel is like, you're my new bride. You're radiant and glorious and holy. And I'm your husband. And, And they're like newlyweds, right? This is their honeymoon moment. And here in verse 15, look, the valley of trouble, you have become a faithless bride. You have gone crazy and you've lost your mind. But I, as a faithful husband, am going to win you back to myself. I'm going to speak tenderly to you. I'm going to take away all the things which are ruining our marriage. And we're going to get reconciled together. And it's going to be like the honeymoon days. And so God, in effect, is giving another proposal Israel, are you ready to renew your vows? Are you ready to go back to where it all began? You ready to start new again? And she shall answer in the days of her youth with an emphatic, yes, Lord. Yes. It's like a proposal. Will you marry me? Yes. And then everyone, even strangers, oh, okay, great. We love it. We love it. And so today, right here, right now, God is not only showing us how he wooed Israel in the Old Testament, but right here, right now, God is wooing you to himself. God is looking into your heart and speaking tenderly to your heart and saying, I want you to understand how much I love you. I'm not merely going to tell you with words how much I love you, but I'm going to give you a powerful demonstration of how much I love you. I sent Jesus on a rescue mission so that by his life, death, and resurrection, He will purchase you for me and he will redeem you. And though you are faithless and sinful, I'm gonna clean you off, wash you and make you new and I will have you as my own. And I will be with you forever and you will be mine forever. And that's his proposal. Will you have me? And each of us in this room, we are gonna have to give our own answer. And I plead with you today, right here, right now, I plead with you, say yes to God. Because there is no other God, there is no other idol who will love you so much that when you receive him will satisfy you completely and when you fail him will forgive you eternally. No one else and nothing else. God alone does that. And if you say yes to God, believing that Jesus has lived, died, and rose again to save you from the wrath of God, He becomes your Lord, but more than that, he becomes your husband, so to speak, where there is the most intimate relationship we as human beings could imagine. You can be known completely, accepted fully, approved of, 
that you are united to him. And now you have worth and you have value which cannot and will not be extinguished no matter what you do in your life. Because when Jesus bought you by the price of his own son, there's no return policy. And as we sang before, no one will be able to pluck you out of his hand. (laughs) For all of us who struggle with being affirmed and all of us who have a fear of rejection, These kinds of words are soothing to our souls, are they not? The whole world may reject you, but I will never leave you, God says. I'll never leave you. I'm always yours. (laughs) That's good. Now, if you say yes to Jesus, what might you expect? What does this marriage relationship look like, this intimate relationship? What, what, What could you possibly be in for? Verse 16 and 17, in that day when you say yes, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and no longer will you call me my Baal. The word there, my Baal, that's the word for the false gods that they were worshiping at this time. But also it means my master. And all of us know that the most cruel taskmaster in the world is whatever idols you worship. If you worship approval, that is you want other people to approve of you, All it takes is one disapproving comment and you're done. If you worship the accolades and achievements of your children, it only takes one D on their report card and you are ruined. And I know it's a reflection on their study habits, but let's be honest, parents, who does it really reflect? You, if you worship their achievements and stuff. If you worship your money and possessions, then what happens to you when pay decrease hits or when the car gets totaled or when the house has a fire and the insurance won't pay for it or whatever? You're done for. You're angry. You explode with emotion. Your idol has been threatened. And every day of your life, you wake up trying to satisfy that taskmaster. Every day. How can I keep my idol safe? That's the whole point of the character Gollum from Lord of the Rings. That's the whole point of the ring itself. When you covet it, it will ruin you. And so God is saying, no more will you mistake your false gods for me. Mm -mm. We're going to have intimate relationship. You won't look at me as your slave master. You're going to look at me as your husband. He says, I'm going to remove the names of the Baals from your mouth. They shall not be remembered anymore. What's amazing about this is how easy you and I fall victim to certain idols without even thinking about it. Somebody asked me recently in my office, they were just like, Phil, what do you think is like one of the most pressing idols in our culture that needs to be talked about? And I said, fitness. And they're like, what? I said, I cannot tell you how many people have quit ministry, quit small groups, and quit coming to church because they got to get to their workout. I'm serious. I cannot explain how many. Now, working out is good. Uh, Former athlete, this guy. Former, keyword, former. (laughs) I know that working out is important. When I played football in college, when I played baseball, it was important to work out. I don't want to get killed by bigger, stronger people than me. I got to hold my own. But when fitness becomes all-encompassing and it becomes ultimate, 
then all you can do is think about when you can get your next, next workout out, how you make sure you gotta eat properly, make sure that you get there to kill it with your fitness community. And then pretty soon you're able to let go of certain things because your mind is drifting always towards the next workout because you think if I can be thin enough or fit enough or strong enough, if I can go enough reps and I can do it enough time, then what will happen is my community will approve of me and I will feel that kind of welcome and adoration I'm longing for. That's what you seek. And I'm saying, look, fitness is good. Eat healthy. That's okay. But sometimes we, we, we think that these idols of like fitness and this kind of stuff, like they're the ones doing the work for us. And that's why we've been down to them. I've known people who have gone to Tony Robbins motivational conferences. You ever heard of these things? You can do it. And they're like, yeah, here's hot coals. Oh, and they people walk across and they're like, I did it. And then they go home and they begin to put in these principles. And the principles are so, they're just common sense, brothers and sisters. Let's try to spend less than we bring in. Oh. I'm so grateful I paid $500 to walk across hot coals to learn that. Never in my life. And, and then there's things like, hey, if you want to lose weight, you know what, you should st- stop eating McDonald's and start eating other things. And you're like, oh, gosh. I'll give anything. This is sound advice. Oh, my gosh. It's changing my life. Bro, What? It's just common sense. You got cold french fries in the back seat. There's a problem. And we can change things. And so these basic principles of life, like, hey, you're going to feel miserable if you sit around all day and eat chocolate. You won't sleep well. You won't be able to think well because God hasn't made you to be like just sitting around omitting the, the basic things of movement and eating properly. He made our bodies to move. And so when we start moving, we eat healthy, we're like, oh my goodness, how did this happen? God made you that way. So brothers and sisters, what I'm trying to say is when we make ultimate these things like fitness or food, or we make ultimate these good things in this world, we are going to make them idols. And when they become idols, they become a wicked taskmaster where you can't even enjoy the food you're eating because you're only eating it out of duty. And you don't really enjoy your workout because all of a sudden everyone, every person physically will plateau. And when you see the pounds just falling off, you're like, yeah, and then all of a sudden, just flat. Oh no, and you're done for. I've seen it, me, myself, I've experienced it. So what God is saying is, no, I don't want you to think of me as your taskmaster. I want you to think in the most intimate terms that I am with you, I am for you. And so here's what Jesus says, these remarkable words. This is my commandment that you love one another as I've loved you. Great commandment. But the manner in which we're to love each other is informed by the manner in which God has loved us. And how has he loved us? Here it is. Greater love has no one than this, as someone lay down his life for his friends. God has loved you so much that he has laid down his life for you. He says, you are my friends if you do what I command. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I've made known to you. We can be friends of God. God is not a wicked taskmaster. God is loving, and he's demonstrated it by laying his life down for you because he wants you to know this is who I am. And in that, God offers this 
true, loving, intimate relationship. But he wants us to understand that when we say yes to him, it it begins a brand new thing. That's why we read in verse 18, I will make for them a covenant on the day when the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. That sounds familiar, those words, this, this kind of concept of covenant. If you turn in your Bibles to like Hebrew, or excuse me, Hosea chapter six, verse seven, we see that Adam transgressed the covenant and there Adam and Eve dealt faithlessly with me, God says. And if we remember the covenant that God made with Adam, we remember that it involves birds and beasts and creeping things on the ground. Do you remember that? Okay, and then, and then he talks about no more war and it's gonna be safety. And, and there's also, if this, this uh, covenant with Noah, verse nine, God says, I'm gonna establish my covenant with you and your offspring forever and with every living creature, birds, livestock, beasts. I will establish my covenant with you in verse 11. In verse 12, here's the sign of the covenant with you and the creatures. Verse 13, I've set my bow in the clouds. And it'll be a covenant, a sign, a covenant between me and the earth. Now, what is the thing that connects all this? Each of these covenants, the covenant with Adam, the covenant with Noah, and now this covenant in Hosea, mark new beginnings. They mark a new start. And so what God is saying is, look, if you say yes to me, you're gonna be brought into the most intimate relationship and be satisfied in ways you never even imagined and it'll be a brand new, fresh start. We're gonna start over. Now this fresh start is really binding. It lasts forever. Look at verse 19 and 20. I will betroth you to me forever. I offered you, and when you say yes, we're betrothed forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and in mercy. And what God says is what you can expect from this relationship is at no point will I ever treat you unjustly. At no point will I ever treat you in an unrighteous way. In no way will you ever be experiencing anything but my steadfast love and mercy. Ever. And then he says, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. I'm never going to leave anywhere. I will not abandon you. I'm eternally and forever yours to do you good for my glory. Always. And notice he says betrothed three times. It reminds us of holy, holy, holy. I betrothed you, betrothed you, betrothed you. Which means God is serious about this business. All of us are scared to death that we're gonna be rejected and people won't like us and they won't wanna be with us and all that kind of stuff. And when it comes to God, God is speaking tenderly to our hearts and he's wooing us to himself. He's showing us how much he loves us through Jesus Christ. He's offering us a new beginning in which we can have security and safety and acceptance and forgiveness and mercy and grace and intimacy of relationship with himself. It's absolute renewal. It's absolute new start. Will you have me, he says. 
In verse 21 to 23, what God does is then he promises that the whole entire creation will experience the restoration in, rightly, in, in being rightly related to him and everything else. And so we read this. This is kind of obscure, but let me help you with it. And in that day, God says, I will answer, declares the Lord. That is, I will answer your cries. I will answer your prayers. He says, I will answer the heavens. Why will he answer the heavens? Because the heavens are looking to God. Fill us with rain. And the heavens shall answer the earth. Because the earth has been looking to the heavens saying, give us some rain. <laughs> and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil. Because the, wane, the, the, wane, the grain, the wine, and the oil has been asking the earth, give us some nutrients. Help us to become what we're supposed to be. And they shall answer Jezreel, which means God sows, because God says, I will sow her for myself in the land. And so if you reverse engineer this, you have this, I, this picture of God sowing these seeds into the ground, but the ground doesn't have enough nutrients, and so the seeds can't sprout. And because the seeds aren't sprouting in the ground for lack of nutrients, that's looking to the heavens, bring us rain that the whole system can be restored. And God promises, like in Romans chapter 8, a day is coming in which this parched land and this world filled with sin and chaos and death itself will all be reversed and the effects of the curse will be no more and everything will be as it ought to be. And you and I will dwell in that kind of land, a land of plenty, a land of good. It's going to be a great reversal. No more death, no more sorrow, no more tears, no more hunger. No more injustice, no more wars. And then ultimately, verse 23, the greatest reversal is that those who have not experienced God's mercy will have mercy. And he says to those, not my people, you are my people, and he shall say, you are my God. And that last little phrase is kind of what you would say at any wedding ceremony, where you exchange vows. Will you take this man to be your lawfully wedded husband? Will you take this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife? And I don't, when I do weddings, I never say I do, because I do is in the present tense, like, yeah, right now it sounds good. But I make our couples always say, I will. Yes, today, and then always, I will. And that's what God does. Will you have me as your own? And we respond, yes. And God says, good. You'll be my people, and I'm now your God forever. All right, now we get to chapter three. And what we see in chapter three, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. But chapter three is quite amazing because God is going to ask Hosea to do something which is just shocking. It's just not something that is done in this world uh, in the time of Hosea. God says to Hosea, go again and marry a woman who is loved by another man. She's an adulteress. In other words, God tells Hosea, you need to find that woman and I want you to marry her. She has a terrible reputation. She, she is sexually promiscuous. She is bad news. And I want you to marry her anyway. Now people at this time would have been like, wait, what? You're marrying that girl? Mm -mm. 
We could be reversed. It's like a woman is marrying a low-life loser man and parents and everyone are like, you're marrying that fool? What are you doing? And it's that kind of situation. God is telling Hosea to do something disgraceful. You're gonna be ridiculed, Hosea. You're gonna be treated with contempt. People are gonna mock you for the woman you have chosen to marry. Now, if you've ever read Jane Austen or you ever watched Downton Abbey, you know how important a right match is because it's like social pecking order and stuff like that. You gotta make sure you marry the right person or else you know, like, uh uh-oh. And it's the same kind of deal back then. You gotta make sure that you're marrying the right person. And here is Hosea, who's a prophet of the Lord. You need to go get the most sully, disgusting woman out there. Make her your bride. This is so like, ooh, disgraceful that even John Calvin says, uh, actually God, this isn't literal, this is just a dream. Because God couldn't possibly want Hosea, a servant of the Lord, to have such a disgusting wife. And the Geneva Bible, which is the Bible that the pilgrims brought with them to America, even in the notes, I have it in my office, even the note, not the one, but you know what I mean, uh, Geneva Bible. Uh, in the notes, it, it has in this text, the notes in there is like, uh, God, you know, this is probably a dream or a vision because God wouldn't want his prophet or servant of the Lord to have a, a wife of that kind. But I think that's the point. I, I actually think that is the point God wants us, and we are disgraceful. We have treated him faithlessly. We are the adulterers. We are the ones that didn't want God and don't want God and mistreat God and ignore God. And if all things being equal, we looked at it, we we should ask God, why do you want them? Why in the world would you want me? Everything I've done against you, and you still want me? That's ridiculous. Think about it. God's grace for rebellious sinners who act unjustly, immorality, just running rampant, that is scandalous. You want these kinds of people? That should shock our senses. The fact is, many people don't come to church anymore because they think they can't come to church unless they get their life in order. I gotta get my ducks in a row and then I'll come back to God. You've heard this before? I think that's you and I's fault as Christians because we have portrayed to the world and even spoken to the world with our words a false gospel. We have told people, hey, you better get your act together and get moral and get on the right road or else, you know, I'm not going to associate with you and, and, you know, and pretty soon people begin to believe, oh, in order for me to come to church, I have to, I have to have everything in order. I have to be put together. I have to have life figured out and then I can come to church. No, 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 God has shown us time and time again, he doesn't want the cream of the crop. He doesn't want those who are the best and brightest, who have it all together, who have all their ducks in a row. Who does God want? God wants the weak. He wants the poor. He wants the hurting. He wants the failing. He wants the simple. He wants the vulnerable. He wants the harassed. And you can read about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Where are the wise people? Where are the rich? Where are the noble? God has been pleased to choose what is disgraceful in the world to shame the wise. 
God wants us in all of our honesty that we are wretched and we know it. That's why I preached a couple weeks ago about how Jesus came not to call the righteous, but he came to call sinners to repentance. God wants you. And he wants you before you can get your ducks in a row and your life all figured out. He wants the messiness. He wants the chaos. He wants the hurt. He wants the pain. He wants it all. He just wants you. Now, Pastor Matt Chandler has done a a tremendous job of illustrating this for us. He tells this incredible story, and I encourage you to go watch it. It's on YouTube. Everything's on YouTube. Pastor Matt Chandler, um, he he talks about this story when he went with uh, a friend of his to this concert, which was really a, a True Love Waits conference. If you know anything about the True Love Waits movement in the 90s, it was all about Uh, I'm going to be just honest. It was all about shaming young people into not, um, yeah, just shaming them into obedience. And so he shows up to this rally with this friend of his who's a girl. She's 26 years old. She's a single mom. And she's presently in a relationship uh, with a man who's married. So she is an unbeliever. She's living all kinds of immorality And Matt Chandler has befriended her and is trying to, and has repeatedly shared the gospel with her over and over and over again. So he invites her to this concert, which turns out to be a True Love Waits conference. And the speaker gets up and he's going to demonstrate the damage that sexual sin causes in one's life. So at the beginning of his talk, the speaker stands up and he passes out this beautiful red rose to someone in the audience and he says, passes it around. Or he says, pass it around, and I want you to notice how good it smells, and I want you to touch its soft petals. And so the rose goes around as the speaker continues to give his message. And towards the end of the message, when the speaker was about to get ready to give his big crescendo and ask for the rose back, he says, where's the rose? And somebody holds it up, and he says, bring it to me. And when it got back to him at the end of his talk, the rose was wilted and drooping. Most of the petals had fallen off, and he held it up, and he says, Now, which one of you wants this rose? And of course, the obvious answer is no one wants that rose. And at this point, the rose is meant to represent people who have sexual sin in their past. And he likens this rose mangled, beat up, and no longer beautiful. He represents that rose as those who have sexual sin in their life. You are ugly. You are not wanted. You're damaged goods. You should be ashamed of yourself. You're disgusting. That's the implication. Matt Chandler was sitting there listening to this and he's becoming angry. And if you ever listen to him speak, he's always angry. And the reason why he was so angry is here he is sitting next to this woman who is in need of hearing grace, who's in need of hearing forgiveness, and this preacher is standing up there and was not preaching the gospel. What was, instead, what he's doing is fear-mongering and shameful behavior. And so uh, Matt Chandler said he felt like he wanted to shout out from the top of his lungs, Jesus wants the rose. That's the whole point of the gospel, is that Jesus wants you. Even if you're ugly, unwanted, mangled, that's the whole point of him coming for you, is he wants you for himself. 
because he will take you in all of your brokenness, in all of your warts and ugliness, and he will make you new. And he will restore you, and he will revive you, and you will be made the beautiful that you're supposed to be. And you don't have to get your life in order. You don't have to make yourself approvable or likable or lovable. Jesus wants you exactly as you are. I will have you. Jesus came for the broken rose. Jesus came for the downtrodden, the wounded, the oppressed, the vulnerable, the weak, the maligned, the shamed, the guilty, the victim, the abuser, the abused. He came for sinners. And he wants you. And how he has proven how desperately he wants you. We see it in Hosea 2, 2 and 3. Hosea buys this woman that is the bride price. It was a costly price. And in the same way, Jesus buys us. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. It is the precious blood of Jesus that was spilled for you in order to redeem you so that he would have you as his own. He loves you. He speaks tenderly to your heart. He's wooing you, not by threats and not by shame. He woos you to himself with the tenderness of his mercies and grace. And he says, come to me. And I will love you in a way you never dared to think possible. I will forgive you and cleanse you. I will make you new. And I will be permanently yours forever and ever. I will be your God and you will be my people. This is what I'm offering to you. How will you answer? And I plead with you today. Say yes. Oh, say yes. And as we come to a time of communion now, what we're going to do is remember how much Jesus has given in order to redeem us from our sin, to make us his people in the new covenant. So Father, I pray, I pray, Lord, that you would help us as we come now to a time of eating the bread and drinking the cup, I pray that you help us to remember that all of us in this room, Lord, we have sins for which we are deeply ashamed of. We have betrayed you and others. We have sinned against you and others. We have broken many of your commands. And Lord, we are deathly afraid that if people, even in this room perhaps, knew who we really were, they would reject us. But God, we're so thankful that that is not a fear that we have in our hearts when it comes to you. For you know us. And you love us anyway. And you demonstrated your love for us by sending Jesus to die for us, rise for us, clean us, to forgive us, to restore us, and to make us new again. Lord, we confess to you this day, many of us, at least in this room, we know that we are dirty roses, but we know that you bring beauty from ashes, and we know that you are doing a good work in us. And those, Lord, who are here today who know their sin and know that something is missing, I pray, Lord, they would say yes. So, Father, be with each of us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As the folks come and serve us communion, what we're going to do is...
we're going to have a time of just remembering and reflecting. And so before they do that, let me remind us that Jesus invites all of us who have repented of our sins and confessed faith in his life, death, and resurrection for our salvation to come and to eat and drink in remembrance of him. If you have not yet repented and believed in the gospel, then I simply ask that you don't take the cup when it comes by you. Um, And it's a a reminder to you that just as you let the, the cup pass, today if you don't believe in Jesus, you're letting salvation pass. And I plead with you, say yes. But if you have believed in Jesus, then take a cup and hold it and we're gonna eat and drink of it together as we celebrate the unity we have in Christ. As we learn today, the Lord woos us to himself. He woos us to himself by speaking tenderly to our hearts and kindness and mercy. And so we as a church, as we eat and drink this, we're proclaiming these saving mercies and these saving graces and the saving love of Jesus Christ. That he has so loved us sinners so radically that he's shed his own blood to purchase us for himself. So we as the church, what we're doing today is renewing our covenant. We are renewing that time in which God holds out salvation to us and says, will you have me as your own? And we, his people, are saying yes. Today today is a covenant renewal, vow renewal ceremony. The Lord Jesus is indeed the bridegroom who has given us his love and will cause within each of us a joy to well up as we think about all that he is and all that he's done. And so let me read this text from 1 Corinthians 11, where the Apostle Paul says, what I've received from the Lord, I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. One day, the cup and the bread we're gonna eat and drink today will give way to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We will feast at the table as the bride of Christ. But until that day comes, we remember together. So these folks are gonna come forward and pass out the communion elements. Once again, I ask that you take and hold uh, the cup until... Um, We all have it, so that way we can eat and drink of it together. So one of the things we're going to do today, typically we sing, sometimes we sit in silence, and that's what we're going to do today is sit in silence. It's a great time to confess. It's a great time to praise God. It's a great time to revel in his mercies and grace. It's a great time for us to just sit in the presence of God and let him remind you of just how much he loves you. And we'll eat and drink of it in just a short while.
want to invite you to take your cup and bread side up. Go ahead and take that bread into your hand. You know, whenever we talk about the love of God, whenever we talk about how much he's done for us, sometimes we think we talk in theory, mere philosophy. Sometimes we want to know, God, is this real? And the reason why the Lord has left for us a time to eat and drink in remembrance of him is because he wants to remind us it's real. God really came in a body. He really died in a body. He really was buried bodily. He really rose from the dead. He's really coming back. And one day we are really going to have new bodies. And so he wants us to remember the reality of that by taking this bread in our hand and realizing as real as this is in your fingers, it's all real. He loves you. And that's why Jesus said, this is my body which is given for you. Take it and eat it in remembrance of me. So church, let's remember. I invite you to take your cup and turn it over. This cup is meant to remind us of the blood of Jesus, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins, but it's also what was poured out to satisfy the wrath of God. Jesus died for you, demonstrating his great love for you, and wants you to know as real as this juice is in this cup, you can be really and truly forgiven. And so we as a church gather in this place remembering what Jesus said, that this is the blood of the new covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So let's drink it in remembrance of him. And Father, we thank you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. God, I pray that today that those of us who have long known you God, that today has been a fresh reminder of just how much you are for us. And those of you, uh, those, of, those of us who are here who do not yet know you, I pray, Lord, today is the day when they say yes. And Father, as we close this service, we have opportunity to sing of just your faithfulness to us. Through whatever it is we experience in life, you will never leave us. You have covenanted with us. You are our God, and we are your people. And thank you for the Lord Jesus, who made it all possible, who eternally purchased us, that we may be the bride of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.